Reflections on the Poetry of W. H. Auden, The War Sonnets, or Sonnets from China and Others. Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Uh, Eliot, constitutionally, uh, was a conservative, uh, an American-born man who moved to England with such a, uh, an attraction that he almost became a monarchist. And um, uh, Auden, who was, whose politics were leftist, whose politics and impulses were liberal and leftist and Marxist, uh, moved from England to America and um, became, in the course of it, the same thing that Eliot became in the course of his journey, namely a Christian. Uh, so that each from their own perspective, moving in opposite, seemingly opposite directions, exhausted certain contemporary modern fascinations and arrived uh, on, the, on the shores, you might say, of the Christian mysteries. What I'd like to do tonight is essentially read from a collection of poems first published as uh, Sonnets from China and then later republished as War Sonnets. And I won't read them all. There are 20-some-odd sonnets, I think, or maybe more. But I'll read a number of them, particularly from the first half of the collection, and just, uh, in a sense, get a feel for Auden's idiom. Uh, because his poetry is more accessible, uh, we may find that uh, phrases will stick in our minds uh, without, even without me having to try to do the sticking. You know how I did with Elliot, I would say. Now, here's a line. I want you all to go home and memorize it. Right? Well, some of these, I think, will, will stick more readily. Uh, and to that end, I'll quote this thing that I, I paraphrased and attributed to Elliot. You'll remember this a few weeks ago. This is a Randall Jarrell comment. Randall Jarrell's American, American poet and critic. I... I have this clipping tucked away someplace from a Time magazine 15 years ago or something, but uh, Randall Jarrell was reviewing Auden's poetry, and he said, he said, Auden has written some of the strongest, strangest, and most original poetry that anyone has written in this century. When old men dying in their beds mumble something unintelligible to the nurse, it is some of those lines that they will be repeating. I like that. So anyway, I said that I, I used that about Eliot. It's true of Eliot too, of course. It's it's unavoidable to make these parallels. I'll say things like this is, like I said of Eliot, uh, this is Eliot's Purgatorio, or this is Eliot's Paradiso, or something. Right. Well, now we can say this is this is Auden's uh, Wasteland. Well, it's not quite. I mean, they don't. The parallels don't stick, but. It is Auden in a something more than a single poem, focusing attention primarily on one fact, and that is uh, the fall. What in what in myth the myth, mythological depiction in the Book of Genesis is the fall story, and what in Christian doctrine is original sin. Uh, and he's doing this uh, at a time of increasing discomfort with the popular nostrums of his day, 
both left and right about what's going on in the world. And uh, I think it's instructive that as he becomes um, incapable of finding the reason for being in these existing systems, uh, and he's inevitably being drawn towards a, a reaffirmation uh, of his Christian uh, background, uh, that he calls that that what he has to, what he begins with is the, the the problem of the fall, because that really is the thing that we keep pushing aside. Uh, in every age, it seems like I I mean I've I've only lived through one and a half of them myself, so I can't say uh, in every age. But it seems to me I mean maybe because we in the 20th century are so lost, or it's because we human beings tend to do this. But in, in any case, in our time, and perhaps in others, we tend to always be on the verge of discovering that it's the uh, that original sin doesn't apply to us, that we're not fallen creatures. That in fact, everything is okay. They've been putting us on. See, they're just they're just all these old stuck in the muds from the Middle Ages. Been talking about original sin. Yuck! What original sin? You know, who was it? I don't know. Somebody other than me. I read it. Everything I know, I read. But uh, somebody said, um, if you you don't have original sin, here's what happens. You think you liberate everybody? You don't liberate everybody. Everybody suddenly starts to think that they're the only ones that are as bad as they know they are. If you have original sin, everybody's liberated. We're stuck with it, folks. It's the way we are. St. Paul says, I try to do good, but I don't. That's the damn thing about it. It's original sin. Well, anyway, Auden, as he begins to be drawn back into the Christian mystery, discovers original sin. And he begins to talk about the fall in a way that, in a contemporary way. This is just a, I don't know what to say, this is a poetry reading. He's using very traditional form, which provides him with an opportunity. You see, a sonnet starts out with the eight lines that give you the, the situation. And then it ends with the six lines, two tercets usually. Uh, and the first tercet gives a... a a new reflection on the situation, and then the last tercet brings it to a, an arresting conclusion. Uh, Auden was a, a master uh, technician, and so he chooses the sonnet. He, of course, uses sonnets often, but he chooses the sonnet as a way of, because it's so well designed for what he's trying to do, to present the situation, catch us up short, and drive it home. So the first poem is simply creation. So from the years the gifts were showered. Each ran off with his at once into his life. B took the politics that make a hive. Fish swam as fish. Peach settled into peach and were successful at the first endeavor, the hour of birth, their only time at college. 
That's a great line. It's all the greater because it doesn't even seem like a great line when you first read it. But it is a masterful line. The hour of birth, their only time at college. He's talking about, he's talking about instinctive life. Life that simply follows the instinctive impulse. That doesn't have to ponder anything. It's all right there in the synapses and the and the secretions and the reflexes. The hour of birth, their only time at college. <laughs> Plus, it's very funny. They were content, see, I should, well, they were content with their precocious knowledge and knew their station and were good forever. Till finally, there came a childish creature on whom the years could model any feature and fake with ease a leopard or a dove who by the lightest wind was changed and shaken and looked for truth and was continually mistaken and envied his few friends and chose his love. So we introduce this other creature who has, who has all of this latitude. It's not just built in. A creature who is conscious enough now to ponder choices and who can do anything and who can be uh, false and who can pretend and uh, be something other than he or she was created to be. Who by the lightest wind was changed and shaken and looked for truth and was continually mistaken and envied his few friends and chose his love. You see, we could only when we when we see the animals choosing their love, we don't we don't think of the word. This is not a choice. We think physical proximity. There's, we now have choice, uh, but there's also in the freedom the trepidation, and trepidation gives rise to falling back on some kind of some kind of stimuli. And I don't, we don't want to get into this right now, but I think it's very interesting that Auden, so he's only got six lines in which to deal with this. And in the punchline of that sonnet is the word envied. Envied his few friends. Looking at his life, a person who looks at his life out of the corner of his eyes or sees his own life through other people's eyes. Well, that's, the, that's just, that's not uh, hardly even the fall. That's just as we know the fall is inevitable. Sonnet 2 uh, is uh, the fall. Well, the, the fall, it goes on into other sonnets. They wondered why the fruit had been forbidden. 
See, that's the real truth. Now, if we were writing the Genesis story all over, I don't want to. I'm happy with what we have. But if we were, we would have Adam and Eve walking out saying, God, that was the biggest bunch of hogwash I ever heard in my life, a tree, forbidden fruit, my ass. I'm getting out of here. I, I'm not going to pay attention anymore. So you see, that would be the way it is because that's how, that's how we are. And Auden's on to that. They wondered why the fruit had been forbidden. It taught them nothing new. They hid their pride, but did not listen much when they were chidden. They knew exactly what to do outside. They left. Immediately, the memory faded of all they'd learnt. Now, I'm going to go on. Because Auden is, at this at the moment he's writing these poems, Auden is exorcising his own Marxist uh, fascinations from the early 30s. I think he's playing a little game here with the word left. Uh, those who left, everybody falls, you see. There's another, there's a parallel sonnet, uh, sonnet to this, uh, sonnet number four is parallel, and it's about someone who stayed. He fell just as surely. Uh, but uh, in a way, it's a picture of, the, of those who hang on to what they think the tradition is and those who walk away from it glibly. There's a, there's a line in Eliot where he says, uh, uh, she uh, gives too soon, what is it? gives into weak hands what, what's thought can be dispensed with till the refusal propagates a fear. Uh, so uh, to, to leave it, so the, so the, uh, so the, what are we going to say, the, the leftist intellectuals were perfectly willing to leave all that claptrap behind. This is, this is the new century. This is the age of Aquarius. They didn't have that term, but it was that kind of thing. They left. Immediately, the memory faded of all they'd learned. They could not understand the dogs now who before had always aided. The stream was dumb with whom they'd always planned. Now suddenly the world is becoming a, a more inhospitable. They wept and quarreled. Freedom was so wild. In front, maturity, as he ascended, retired like a horizon from the child. The dangers and the punishments grew greater, and the way back by angels was defended against the poet and the legislator. No going back. Uh, but maturity keeps receding. And then the withering of the imagination. Only a smell had feelings to make known. Only an eye could point in a direction. The fountain's utterance was itself alone. The bird did nothing. That was his projection who named it as he hunted it for food. See, the fountain's utterance did nothing. Excuse me, the fountain's utterance was itself alone. Remember Eliot and the quartets talked about the whisper of running stream? The stream, the gurgling of the stream was, well, you know, that's the voice of, that's the calling. <coughs> But now that things are withering, the fountain's utterance was itself alone. The bird, excuse me, I, I said did nothing. The bird meant nothing. 
That was his projection. Notice Auden inserts a nice Freudian uh, psychoanalytic uh, term in there uh, to, to delineate where the death of the imagination, in what way the, the imagination is being uh, dismantled in his time. Uh, and everything is utilitarian. The bird meant nothing. That was his projection who named it as he hunted it for food. He felt the interest in his throat and found that he could send his servant to the wood or kiss his bride to rapture with a sound. He discovers a voice. He, the, the, the fallen creature discovers he can speak. They bred like locusts till they hid the green and edges of the world. And he became abject and his own creation became subject and shook with hate for all things he'd never seen, and knew of love without love's proper object, and was oppressed as he had never been. Okay, now here's the one who tries to stay home and cling to the old ways. Sonnet number four. He stayed and was imprisoned in possession. The seasons stood like guards about his ways. The mountains chose the mother of his children, and like a conscience, the sun ruled all his days. Now, this is what we've seen in several of the pieces of literature we've looked at over the last couple of years, this, this uh, idea of returning to this uh, seasonal, natural cycle and avoiding the, the, the vicissitudes of of history and what it means to be in history by returning to this little cyclical pattern. Eliot, uh, that whole thing in uh, Eliot's East Coker about uh, round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, or joined in circles, rustically solemn or in rustic laughter, lifting heavy feet and clumsy shoes around the bonfire. And, and in the Eliot poem in here, it has to do with seasons and patterns and and here it is that the mountains choose the mother of his children. First sonnet in this sequence said, uh, one, it comes along a creature who is conscious and who must choose his love and envy his friend. It's a package deal. Uh, you choose your love and envy your friend. Part of the fallen condition. The mountains chose the mother of his children, and like a conscience, the sun ruled all his days. Beyond him, his young cousins in the city pursued their rapid and unnatural course, believing in nothing but were easygoing. There's another nice slide. Very subtle, thin line, really, but nice. Believing in nothing but were easygoing and treated strangers like a favorite horse. And he changed little, this one who stayed, changed little, but took his color from the earth and grew in likeness to his sheep and cattle. The townsmen thought him miserly and simple. The poet wept and saw in him the truth. This is mocking. This is uh, Auden mocking the romantic, Rousseau-esque, poetic... Uh, you see, the, to look on the, the rustic as, uh, as someone who knows something more than somebody else, you see. Uh, the poet wept and saw in him the truth, and the oppressor 
held him up as an example. Just, just behave this way. Get the work done. Send your taxes in. Never ask any questions. Stay put. This is what we need. Good, salt-of-the-earth souls. There's a companion set here of the hero and the poet. Uh, two, two sonnets, one about the fall of the hero and one about the fall of the poet. Everything is, all these have to do, deal with, the, have to do with the fall and the original sin. This is the hero. His generous bearing was a new invention. For life was slow, earth needed to be careless. With horse and sword he drew the girl's attention. He was rich. Excuse me, he was the rich, the bountiful, the fearless. But you see, Auden's already let the cat out of the bag. He drew, he drew the girl's attention. He's already kind of let us in on it. And to the young, he came as a salvation. They needed him to free them from their mothers. And grew sharp-witted in the long migration. And round his campfires learnt all men are brothers. That's not a, that's that's a line. That's a, another ironic line. Around the, the heroes' campfires, one does learn brotherhood, and it is intoned in universal intonation. But it is not universal brotherhood. One one learns around the campfires of the heroes. It is the tribal brotherhood. And it is purchased at the price of the hostile tribe. So round his campfires, and we're about to find, and it's not as though I'm reading something into Auden, we're about to find that out. But, so there's the hero for you. But suddenly the earth was full. He was not wanted. We can't do that anymore, guys. <laughs> we're all living in cities now. And we need you to kind of Sort of go to work in the morning and come home and shuffle papers, so let's try to make some adjustments, right? <clears throat> but suddenly the earth was full. He was not wanted. And he became the shabby and demented and took to drink to screw his nerves to murder or sat in offices and stole and spoke approvingly of law and order and hated life with all his soul. And that's about as bitter as any of these sonnets get. The fall of the hero. The fall of the poet. Auden knows whereof he speaks here. He was their servant. Some say he was blind. R rumor has it Homer was bl blind, and John Milton was blind. Some say he was blind, and moved among their faces and their things. Their feeling gathered in him like a wind. It's another nice thought. I just want to call attention to these beauties. Their feeling gathered in him like a wind, so that, so that uh, his poetry becomes an expression of their feeling. That's why, that's why we like poetry. Because we, we read it or hear it and we say, that 
we want to have it, we want to have those feelings expressed. And uh, their feeling gathered in him like a wind and sang. They cried, it is a God that sings and worshipped him and set him up apart and made him vain till he mistook for song the little tremors of his mind and heart at each domestic wrong. <laughs> See? Every little burp, see, now he thinks that's a poem. <laughs> Songs came no more. He had to make them. With what precision was each strophe planned? He hugged his sorrow like a plot of land. Auden was not only exercising his leftist politics, he was also exercising the influence of several poets, one of whom was, was Rilke. And uh, I can't uh, avoid thinking that he's talking about Rilke. I mean, he's talking about the kind of poet that Rilke was. He hugged his sorrow like a plot of land and walked like an assassin through the town and looked at men and did not like them but trembled if one passed him with a frown. The fall of the poet. And Sonnet 8 is a sonnet about the fall. I guess the way to put it is a sonnet about the fall of some of the Enlightenment, uh, the consequence of the Enlightenment, science and democracy and capitalism and all that. Uh, so we're still with the fallen creature. He turns his he turned his field into a meeting place and grew the tolerant ironic eye. Now there's a phrase: the tolerant ironic eye. You know what the first word gives, the second word takes away. The tolerant ironic eye. It uh, it's not it's not the kind of loving tolerance or openness or acceptance. You know. It's tolerant because it's it's lost. It's it's that it's what Eliot says attachment and detachment uh, uh, both have a place but indifference is what you gotta watch out. A tolerant ironic eye and formed the mobile money-changer's face and found the notion of equality. Um, there's an immense world of difference between the notion of equality and the notion of brotherhood. Uh, forgive the gender specificity of that latter term, but uh, e equality is a, is a noble enough idea but it is it pales to insignificance compared to, to the brotherhood. So he found the notion of equality. And strangers were as brothers to his clock. Now there's a there's a line that doesn't have any real meaning. I mean it's really if you analyze it doesn't it doesn't mean anything really. But it I think it communicates some truth about uh about us these days and in the days that led up to these days. The strangers were as brothers to his clock, clocks. 
and with his spires he made a human sky, skyscrapers. Museums stored his learning like a box, and paper watched his money like a spy. It grew so fast his life was overgrown, and he forgot what once it had been made for, and gathered into crowds and was alone and lived expensively and did without, and could not find the earth which he had paid for, nor feel the love that he knew all about. Now, for what Auden is doing, you can't do it any better than that. I happen to be reading a... a the uh, journals of Jean Sullivan, a French novelist, in which he says, uh, how can we escape the complacency of vertigo? How can we escape the complacency of vertigo? The complacency of vertigo. Wow. Well, the point is um, that... Uh, Auden is taking us to a very to a very fallen state. The person who helped him uh, discover the real uh, life, uh, the real uh, flowing waters of the Christian tradition, uh, was a man named Charles Williams, and we have uh, referred to Charles Williams occasionally on and off over the last while, but quite a bit when we were doing Dante, because Williams wrote. Williams is a novelist and so on, but I've never read any of his novels, but he, uh, he wrote a number of things about Dante's work, particularly about Dante's relationship to Beatrice and the Divine Comedy and so on. And he's a very, very wonderful writer. And he wrote two books um, that, were, that influenced Auden a great deal, particularly the, the, the second of the two. First was a book called uh, "And He Came Down from Heaven," which is a story, which is the, uh, his reflect his retelling in a way of the uh, mystery of the incarnation. And the second book is a book called uh, "The Descent of the Dove," which is the story of the the uh, movement of the Spirit in the Christian in the history of the Christian Church. And uh, Auden found these books. Compelling. He and, he and Williams became good friends, and uh, the uh, the latter book particularly became an important touchstone for for Auden. I think the next two sonnets, Sonnet ten and eleven, in a way are parallel to the, those two volumes. Uh, the first one is uh, the first volume was he came down from heaven, so it has to do with uh, the incarnate, the the. coming into the world of the Messiah and the immediate consequences which, uh, which for the church and then what happens later. So it goes like this. But it's told not as something back then but something right now. As a, as a child, the wisest could adore him. He felt familiar to them as their wives. The very poor saved up their pennies for him, and martyrs brought him presents of their lives. 
but who could sit and play with him all day? Their other needs were pressing, work and bed. The beautiful stone courts were built where they could leave him to be worshipped and well-fed. The beautiful stone courts. But he escaped. They were too blind to tell that it was he who came with them to labor and talked and grew up with them like a neighbor. To fear and greed, those courts became a center. The poor saw there the tyrant's citadel and martyrs the lost face of the tormentor. Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. Something something has to intervene. So here's Sonnet 11, which I think parallels Williams, The Descent of the Dove. He looked in all his wisdom from the throne down on the humble boy who kept the sheep and sent a dove. And then let me come back to that story. The humble boy who, sh- who kept the sheep, I think, is Peter. In the Gospel of John, 16th chapter of the Gospel of John, the paraclete discourse, Jesus says, unless I go, it's good that I go, uh, because unless I go, the Spirit cannot come to you. The advocate, the paraclete, cannot come to you. But if I go, he will come to you, and he will show you how wrong the world was about sin and about judgment. And in the epilogue, in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is... uh, is out on the shore with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, did you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Look after my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. So he is, uh, he's bidden to be the keeper of the sheep. He looked in all his wisdom from the throne down on the humble boy who kept the sheep and sent a dove. The dove returned alone. Youth liked the music, but soon fell asleep. But he had planned such a future for the youth. Surely his duty now was to compel. For later, he would come to love the truth and own his gratitude. The eagle fell. Um, I had to tell you about the about the Charles Williams volume. In Williams volume, he treats to some of these grand disasters in the history of the church um, as uh, disasters. He's no apologist for them. He, he, he's, he's not uh, he's not covering them up. But it, almost as though he shakes his head and says, somehow through that something came into the spirit of the church that could not have come otherwise. And it, were we there the day before that happened, we should have spent all our time preventing it. But having happened, some amazing things came from it. 
So he, he gives that perspective on, on things. It's very forgiving but, and, and wonderful. So here it is. The eagle fell. The dove came back alone. Didn't work. We sent the dove. Didn't work. Sent the eagle. It did not work. His conversation bored the boy who yawned and whistled and made faces and wriggled free from fatherly embraces. But with eagle, now the eagle is Constantine. You see, the first dove is the spirit of the church, the John and Nine Paraclete, the, the breath, the spirit, the real spirit of Christ. But uh, in the fourth century. He sent Constantine to just convert them all. And then after we've had them all converted for about four or five generations, they'll understand why we converted them. The boy yawned and whistled and made faces and wriggled free from fatherly embraces. But with Eagle, he was always willing to go where it suggested and adored and learnt from it the many ways of killing. So there's the church, killing. There's the church uh, who uh, suffers this Constantinian version of itself uh, and becomes complicit in the very disasters uh, historical disasters which the Christian movement uh, ought to be in the business of uh, determining. And the age ended and the last deliverer died in bed, grown idle and unhappy. They were safe. The sudden shadow of the giant's enormous calf would fall no more at dusk across the lawn outside. Notice the word lawn. It says so much about what's going on. The old monster's not going to be there anymore. This is, we're, we're now in, we're past the enlightenment, see, now we're into the... They slept in peace. In marshes here and there, no doubt, a sterile dragon lingered to a natural death. But in a year the spore had vanished from the heath. The cobbled knocking in the mountain petered out. Only the sculptors and poets were half sad. And the pert retinue of the magician's house grumbled and went elsewhere. The vanishing powers were glad to be invisible and free. Without remorse, struck down the sons who strayed into their course and ravaged the daughters and drove the fathers mad. I get the the gist of that in a way. The gist of that is that we're just as superstitious as we are. Well, not that that things haven't changed as much as they seem. There's a line I don't know. It reminded me of this line. There's a line in in, in uh, Charles Williams, the descent of the dove. I'll just give you a feeling for him. Um, he's talking about a significant shift that took place in France between the thirteenth, uh, fifteenth century, and he says. Um, Louis XI, who's a 15th century monarch, Louis XI was even more superstitious than Louis IX in the 13th century. But he was less supernatural. 
He was more superstitious, but he was less supernatural. That's the way William, that's William's approach. Well, likewise, this monster. Now I'm going to just quote uh, uh, from two, uh, two more of these. I'm just going to quote little passages and then kind of explore where this takes us. From Sonnet 13. But hear the morning's injured weeping and know why. Cities, cities and men have fallen. The will of the unjust has never lost its power. Still, all princes must employ the fairly noble unifying lie. All princes must as, uh, he's tipping his hand here. He's, ta- he's, Machiavelli, he's talking about Machiavelli. All princes must employ the fairly noble unifying lie. History opposes its grief to our buoyant song. The good place has not been. Our star has warmed to birth a race of promise that has never proved its worth. The quick new west is false and prodigious. There's a line for you. The quick new west is false and prodigious. It seems to me the mystery and the truth about our life and our lives together is paradox. And as soon as we forget, as soon as we fall from that awareness, then we are doomed to create parodies. And finally, it just comes down to that, paradoxes and parodies of paradoxes. The quick new West is false and prodigious. Well, and because we're fallen creatures, and because the princes, that is to say, the the, the uh, people was in power, uh, have a ha, are, are constantly resorting to the fairly noble unifying lie. Uh, history is a is a is a uh, presents a constant problem. Last of these that I will quote from in this sequence. Uh, this is just a couple, of, few lines from number fourteen. The groping searchlights suddenly reveal the little natures that will make us cry. They take us by surprise, like ugly, long-forgotten memories. Behind each sociable, home-loving eye, the private massacres are taking place. All women, Jews, the rich, the human race. Behind each sociable, home-loving eye, E-Y-E, the private massacres are taking place. All women, Jews, the rich, the human race. The fairly noble unifying lie, of course, is that it's their fault. 
In the fire sermon, the wasteland, Elliot says, the river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink in the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. Now, that the nymphs are departed means that, well, but at my back from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and motors which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter in the spring. Uh, the nymphs uh, will arouse us, awaken us, stir us, uh, and at whatever perhaps lower level of the chakras that uh, stirring may begin, it can uh, get us going. But without the nymphs, we're left with horns and motors. And by the way, I don't think Elliot is talking about exclusively about automobiles. Uh, horns and motors is a reference to the kind of the kind of motivation for uh, for sexual rendezvous that you end up with without the nymphs. Horns and motors. In other words, a, a purely instinctual kind of show up at the whorehouse with the money in hand a response to the springtime uh, <laughs> event. I read that because the nymphs are departed and there's a nymphs uh, reference here in this Auden thing. Auden's metaphor in this poem is casino. To the last feast of isolation, self-invited, they flock and in the rite of disbelief are joined. But here, no nymph comes naked to the youngest shepherd. The fountain is deserted. The laurel will not grow. The labyrinth is safe but endless. And broken is Ariadne's thread. Now that is just, I think, one hell of a line. The labyrinth is safe, but endless. Exactly. No minotaur in the labyrinth anymore. We've taken care of that. It's endless. And broken is Ariadne's thread. You know that's the story of Theseus, where he goes in and gets back out with the thread of Ariadne. So now we're in the labyrinth, you see. He leaves us in the labyrinth with no thread and no minotaur. He sees the fallen condition as primarily the, the, the ineradicable fact of human life. And so he spends a good deal of poetic effort to try to put that on the record. <laughs> And then he gets to the end of the 30s and uh, moves to America and converts to the church. And the question is, where do you go after you've been here? The, the labyrinth is safe but endless and broken as Ariadne's thread. Yeats had written a poem in 32, four lines of which were this. Though the great song return no more, there's keen delight in what we have, the rattle of pebbles on the shore, 
under the receding wave. Now, I don't know how many can take solace in that, uh, but that was <laughs> that was uh, one of Yeats's uh, moments of feeling that the labyrinth is safe but endless. But Auden just, uh, turned to the Christian mysteries, and uh, to to see we can see how he did that by seeing how he regarded Yeats, from whom he learned things like that. Yeats died in January 1939, and Auden wrote a uh, poem uh, in memory of W.B. Yeats, which is a widely anthologized poem. And I'll just read you excerpts from it. He says, The words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living. Follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night with your unconstraining voice. Still persuade us to rejoice. Right to the bottom of the night. And then persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. It's a lot easier to teach the slave how to be free than it is to teach the free man how to praise. And both of them are worth teaching and learning. Uh, but what Auden is exploring is the latter one. Uh, this is a, a poem called September 1st, 1939. That's the day that the German tanks rolled into Poland, started World War II uh, officially. And I'll just read you excerpts from it. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth. Obsessing our private lives, the unmentionable odor of death offends the September night. Each language pours its vain competitive excuse. But who can live for long in a euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face and the international wrong. Now this is the, the, the archetype of the warring brother. The, classical, the, the classic result of the of mimetic rivalry. Imperialism, they're looking out of the mirror at each other. In other words, they're mirror images of each other. Imperialism's face and the international wrong, international communism. Looking out of the mirror at each other. Faces along the bar cling to the average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are, lost in a hunted wood. Children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. 
All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. There's interesting history to that line because in, 1960, in 1955, when Oscar Williams was putting together a collection, an anthology, Auden wanted to change that last line to we must love one another and die, which changes everything. It's on the other side of his full conversion. Defenseless under, last uh, stanza, defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I compose like them of arrows and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. So as he said in the, uh, in the poem about Yeats, um, still persuade us to rejoice and so on, in spite of all that, the poem ends with his determination to show an affirming flame in the midst of that disaster. Now, is the two, two things have to happen. He's got to remind people of the scope of the disaster. This is like the prophetic problem in the ancient Hebrew. Uh, here's how the ancient Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew prophet would, would just be a total crank until the disaster came. Then it would be very reassuring. Um, well, uh, <laughs> because he's saying, <laughs> but so Auden is having to, in a sense, do both of those at the same time. Uh, A.T. Tooley said this about Auden. Faced at the end of the decade, that's the decade of the 30s, with the full horror of power, even in what he felt to be a just cause, like the Republican cause in Spain, the only road for Auden away from his ambivalence towards power was the acceptance of humility and self-effacement as higher values. And the way to this was through Christianity. At the time that Auden is writing the New Year letter, he had, in the words of the critic John Fuller, already exhausted in his imagination the subtlest mythologies based on hostility. Now that is uh, <clears throat> simply a preliminary fact, but it is an enormous preliminary fact. Unfortunately, for instance, Yeats had not at the same point in his poetic uh, line. Uh, if one hasn't exhausted those uh, the subtlest of mythologies based on hostility. Uh, one falls back on them in times like this. Eliot had likened the bombers to the Pentecostal uh, event, in a, saying, in effect, that we will be so um, stripped of our conventional 
habits by the mere fact of those bombers come, uh, coming across the sky that we will be exposed to the Pentecostal spirit. It, in a sense, will help us receive the spirit. On, uh, didn't feel so. Anyway, in a poem uh, written in 1940, he has these lines. Not even war can frighten us enough. That last attempt to eliminate the strange by uniting us in a terror of something known. Even that's a failure which cannot stop us taking our walks alone. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Not even war can frighten us enough. That last attempt to eliminate the strange by uniting us in a terror of something known, even that's a failure, which cannot stop us taking our walks alone. It's not working anymore. You see? Now that's someone who has, in Fuller's terms, exhausted in his imagination the subtlest mythologies based on hostility. 